0: We're just going to jump right into the book of Job. No story, no illustration, let's just start with it. It is a weird book. (laughs) It asks of the reader at the very beginning in chapter 1 to do some type of understanding, interpretation, and translation that might not come at first glance. The book of Job, as many scholars have argued, is a very long parable. It's written in the same format that you would read the Odyssey with Odysseus going up against all of his challenges and things happening within his world. Hear me say this again. The book of Job is much like a very long parable. Just notice how it starts out. There once was a man who lived in the land of us, who was named Job. Now, there's a whole lot of complicated Hebrew verb, to noun, subject, whole things, and the reason why that is why it is that nobody really cares about, so I'm not gonna get into that. But what I will tell you is that this start helps the reader because when they use the word us in this, it is known as counsel or advice. A land far off, known as the land of counsel and advice. And there once was a man named Job, who in Hebrew is A'ov, was known as the one who hostility has been done to me. It is a story of a man to give us counsel, to give us advice. How we identify with this story and categorize this text is important how we come to interpret and draw conclusions about God in this text. So just imagine with me as we go through how this story unfolds. I imagine Yahweh and the Satan are sitting together. And yes, the correct form in this is the Satan with a definite article. And we know that personal names are not associated with definite articles, so this does not mean the uppercase Satan that we have understood the devil to be in the New Testament. This is more like the chief prosecutor of God's court. So they're sitting together in the heavenly courts playing some cards, some gin rummies, some spades, some poker. And God begins to boast about a man who lives in us, who's so dedicated, who's blameless and upright, and the Satan of course takes this on as a wager, that will this man If everything awful, if he is forsaken, if everything goes wrong in his life, would he still worship God? So the argument began to form. Does he only fear God because he's a wealthy landowner, gets to play golf three times a week and still make big business deals? Or does he fear God because he believes God is true living, being within his life. So a little wager is made. Now go back and read chapter 1 so that I won't see on social media that y'all said the pastor was out there telling about God was at Riverwind Casino making gambles and bets and such. Just tell me what the text says. Within a matter of time, Job loses his entire family, his home, his crops, his land won't produce. Everything that made Job, Job, he has lost. And then the community of so-called friends blame him for everything that is happening. They continue to tell him to fall on your knees and repent and pray to God. For you are not blameless in this situation. Obviously, this wouldn't happen if you hadn't done something, if something wasn't wrong with you, Job. And Job continues to protest. Job, in this text, shows the willingness to wrestle with God. But also, Job's example gives, brings up rather the discussion of punitive theology. The assumption that evil, pain, disease, and suffering can be easily explained as just punishment from God. And we have seen that throughout the Hebrew Bible, someone's sin caused them to have a disease or punishment, but through time, we understand that's not true. Now, I'm not saying that there isn't consequences for sin and evil, but God does not just throw out diseases and suffering just for the heck of it, just for a test. That's what makes this story of Job so hard because some have taken these words within this book and deemed them a definitive nature of God. It has been preached so much that it's second nature to think that God is just some sadistic being throwing out harm and pain and wrong and evil and suffering and diseases. But note Job wisely states that his adversity is the evil, the enemy, not God. There is evil and pain and wrong in the world, and I need you to realize it's not of God. So then what is God? Who is God? God is the one who sits with us in our pain, and our suffering, and our sickness, even when it's hard to notice, even when it seems so dark that no light can penetrate it, even when it seems that God is not there, our God sits with us in it, walks and journeys with us through it. And right here, we sit with the passage of Job in chapter 23. If I go forward, he's not there. If I go backward, I cannot perceive him. On my left, he hides. I cannot behold him. If I turn right, I cannot see him. God has made my heart faint. We see Job feeling as if God is not with him in the darkness. The Australian Jesuit Father Richard Leonard wrote the book, Where the Heck is God? after his devout family was devastated by his sister's tragic death. The title comes from the question his mother asked daily for years. Christians talk and talk and talk about a loving and compassionate God, he says, but when tragedy strikes, too many of us automatically believe We did something to deserve God's wrath, that God is testing us. And he said his family was no different. They lived with this unspoken expectation that if they lived right, then they'd experience God's love. Nothing bad would happen. Everything would be okay. They realized that that's not how it works. Leonard explains that through time their experiences and understanding of God begin to change. Their church family surrounded them with love. The priest stopped by once a week for 2 years straight and they begin to understand that God was not punishing them. But like the priest, God was sitting with them crying and weeping with them. And this experience of God was so refreshing for him that he devoted himself to becoming a priest. Now, Father Richard Richard Leonard says that his greatest purpose is to sit with others who have experienced tragedy and to share with them. God does not send these accidents to teach us to learn something from them, but God is devastated with us, that God weeps with us, that God is walking with us, that God is holding us, that God is in the midst of the darkness too, even when we don't notice. I'm sure many of us wish we had Father Leonard's words in different times in our own lives. I'm sure many of us have said Job's words like it was a deep prayer. If I go forward, he's not there. Or backward, I surely cannot perceive God. And I'm guessing Job, myself, and many of you have once felt like just sitting in the darkness that everybody else around was shining their light. Everybody else seemed like it was going good. Everybody else didn't have tragedy. Everyone else wasn't sitting in the midst of darkness inside and out. It's dark. A few years ago, there was a huge debate going on with football players and owners It filled Twitter, Facebook, and on many news outlets. It was a discussion over body and mind. There was a stigma that professional athletes were taught to never show weakness, to never give an opponent an edge, to open up when something hurts. was wrong. Have a Brandon Marshall, a pro wide receiver, begin speaking out and advocating for mental health. Saying that no longer can he or other players mask the pain, that the pain is real. And player after player after player began to offer confessions on their mental health, explaining not knowing what to do or who to turn to, that money doesn't fix the trauma in their lives. Players such as Brett Roberts, who suffered from bipolar disorder, Brandon Brooks and Lane Johnson opened up, saying that it was nothing foreign, but that they were just supposed to push it further and further down and act as if it was never there. Sadly, the same goes for the church. The trauma of mental health or the suffering through the darkness is not new. It's just not discussed in our sanctuary often, which is weird since sanctuary actually means a place of safety. We know that one in five people will be impacted by personal experiences of mental health And despite how common depression, anxiety, and our mental health challenges are in the church, we're often very silent about this kind of suffering. As one writer puts it, mental illness is known in the church as the non-casserole dish disease. (laughs) And far too long, the church has interpreted mental health as a result of sin, this punitive theology type of way of being. And today we know much more about the human brain. We know that our mental health is physical health and that diseases, disorders, and illnesses span from a complex web of causes, environment. It's hereditary. So many other causes. And so often folks in the church blame the victim like Job's friends, giving platitudes that really help no one at all, but only makes you feel good for saying it. It doesn't help to just pray it away and just read your Bible or everything happens for a reason because it doesn't. Or that it's just a test. Those comments aren't helpful. Because these illnesses are not just sadness and sorrow or negative thinking or just being down. As Catherine Green McCraight, a theologian and minister who suffers from bipolar disorder, it is being cast to the very end of your tether. And quite frankly, feeling as though you are being dropped It's not something that one just shrugs off and move on, but it is the relentless knowing for moving from one pain to the next pain. I am very grateful for Catherine Recreit's words and example as a pastor with bipolar disorder. It was a late night, and Valerie and I were watching the Amazon series Modern Love, Anne Hathaway was the star of this episode, detailing a bipolar woman who struggles to find love between her mania, her highs, her lows, and even those few moments that seem like normal. I kept looking back and forth at Valerie, wondering, does she notice any of those signs? going to doctor after doctor, trying to find the right concoction to help. Whatever is happening on the inside, the feeling when light just doesn't come on, trying to go through one thing after the next, after the next, after the next, after the next. After the next. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Wondering, did I remember to take this one, and if I took this one, but then my ADHD may jump in, and then I can't take this one, so we have to move that one there. But on Tuesdays, I can take this one, but on Wednesdays, I can't take that one. Wondering if I were to ever admit that I had bipolar, would I ever get a job, would I ever find love, would how many times will I just hear people come, keep saying platitudes, and I'm so sorry? And that the historic shame and stigma associated with mental health creates real barriers to getting treatment, to getting health, The fear of being judged and rejected and abused. And I would love to say that when people know about it, that they want to understand better, but as soon as I disagree with someone or that I might have been fed up with their stuff, it's, oh, I get it, you're bipolar. Maybe we'll try this again another day. As if I can't just think for myself. I'm not saying this for you to pity me. I'm saying this for those who struggle to be open and honest about what is happening as they sit in the darkness. I'm not saying this for you to pity me because I'm happy with who I am and was overjoyed when I finally figured out why I was in the darkness so much. I say this so we can be a better community that the church cannot just sit silent about it, but that we can be open and honest and there for each other in the darkness. To know how to engage with each other, that each and every one of us is different. I say this that if you are sitting here, if you are watching online, however, that you're loved. Be kind to yourself, give yourself grace. That we promise in that whole baby dedication thing in baptism and in joining church that we vow to be with you, that we are going to journey and walk and love you no matter what in the mountaintops and even the valleys, whether you're high-functioning or not. I say this because many have told me I feel guilty because I know there are those who are in shelters that have it worse. I I saw someone who needs food. Who am I to say that I'm stressed or depressed or anxious or suffering in the darkness? There are people who are dealing with it worse. But that's not how it works, my friends. As Kevin Sinclair once sat me down and reminded, we don't go through and do an audit of suffering. And build programs for a few and tell the rest of you good luck with what you're going through. Your suffering is not exempt. You're not alone. You are loved. God is with you. So when you start to doubt that you exist, God believes in you. Confounded by the evidence God believes in you when you are so ashamed that you could die. God believes in you. And you can't do it right even though you try. God believes in you, my friends. Amen.